section thirty six of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lilly craik english poets ockleave lydgate the most numerous class of writers in the mother tongue belonging to this time are the poets by courtesy so called we must refer to the learned and curious pages of wharton or to the still more elaborate researches of ritson for the names of a crowd of worthless and forgotten versifiers that fill up the annals of our national minstrelsy from chaucer to lord surrey the last mentioned antiquary has furnished a list of about seventy english poets who flourished in this interval the first known writer of any considerable quantity of verse after chaucer is thomas ockleve wharton places him about the year fourteen twenty he is the author of many minor pieces which mostly remain in manuscript although six of peculiar stupidity says ritson were selected and published by dr askew in seventeen ninety six and also of a longer poem entitled de regimine principum on the government of princes chiefly founded on a latin work with the same title written in the thirteenth century by an italian ecclesiastic egidius styled the doctor fundatissimus and on the latin treatise on the game of chess of jacobus de casullus another italian writer of the same age the latter being the original of the game of the chess translated by caxton from the french and printed by him in fourteen seventy four ockley's poem has never been published and is chiefly remembered for a drawing of chaucer by the hand of ockley which is found in one of the manuscripts of it now in the british museum ockleave repeatedly speaks of chaucer as his master and poetic father and was no doubt personally acquainted with the great poet all that ockleave appears to have gained however from his admirable model is some initiation in that smoothness and regularity of diction of which chaucer's writing set the first great example his own endowment of poetical power and feeling was very small the very titles of his pieces as wharton remarks indicating the poverty and frigidity of his genius by far the most famous of these versifiers of the fifteenth century is john lydgate the monk of berry whom the historian of our poetry considers to have arrived at his highest point of eminence about the year fourteen thirty ritson has given a list of about two hundred and fifty poems attributed to lydgate indeed he seems to have followed the manufacture of rhymes as a sort of trade furnishing any quantity to order whenever he was called upon on one occasion for instance we find him employed by the historian wetham steed who was abbot of st albans to make a translation into english for the use of that convent of the latin legend of its patron saint the chronicler who records a part of this anecdote observes wharton seems to consider lydgate's translation as a matter of mere manual mechanism for he adds that wetham steed paid for the translation the writing and illuminations one hundred shillings 
lydgate however though excessively diffuse and possessed of very little strength or originality of imagination is a considerably livelier and more expert writer than ockley his memory was also abundantly stored with the learning of his age he had travelled in france and italy and was intimately acquainted with the literature of both these countries and his english makes perhaps a nearer approach to the modern form of the language than that of any preceding writer his best-known poem consists of nine books of tragedies as he entitles them respecting the falls of princes translated from a latin work of boccaccio's it was printed at london in the reign of henry the eighth a selection from the minor poems of dan john lydgate edited by mr hallowell has been printed for the percy society octavo london eighteen forty scottish poets winton james i henryson holland blind henry the most remarkable portion of our poetical literature belonging to the fifteenth century as also we shall presently find of that belonging to the first half of the sixteenth was contributed by scottish writers the earliest successor of barber was andrew of wintown or winton a canon regular of the priory of st andrews and prior of the monastery of st serf's inch in loch leven one of the establishments subordinate to that great house who is supposed to have been born about thirteen fifty and whose original chronicle of scotland appears to have been finished in the first years of the fifteenth century it is a long poem of nine books written in the same octosyllabic rhyme with the bruce of barber to which it was no doubt intended to serve as a kind of introduction winton however has very little of the old archdeacon's poetic force and fervour and even his style though in general sufficiently simple and clear is if anything rather ruder than that of his predecessor a difference which is probably to be accounted for by barber's frequent residences in england and more extended intercourse with the world the chronicle is principally interesting in an historical point of view and in that respect it is of considerable value and authority for winton besides his merits as a distinct narrator had evidently taken great pains to obtain the best information within his reach with regard to the events both of his own and of preceding times the work begins as was then the fashion with the creation of the world and comes down to the year fourteen o eight but the first five books are occupied rather with general than with scottish history the last four books together with such parts of the preceding ones as contain anything relating to british affairs were very carefully edited by the late mr david macpherson the author of the well-known annals of commerce and other works in two volumes octavo london seventeen ninety five it is deserving of notice that a considerable portion of winton's chronicle is not his own composition but was the contribution of another contemporary poet namely all from the nineteenth chapter of the eighth to the tenth chapter of the ninth book inclusive comprising the space from thirteen twenty four to thirteen ninety and forming about a third of the four concluding books this he conscientiously acknowledges in very careful and explicit terms both at the beginning and end of the insertion we may give what he says in the latter place as a short sample of his style this part last treated beforn frae davy the bruce our king was born while his sister son robert the second our king then called stuart that nest him reigned successive his days had ended of his life 
wit ye well was not my dight thereof i dare me well acquite wa that it dighted nevertheless he showed him of more cunningness than me commendeth his treatise but favour wa will it clearly prize this part was written to me send and i that thought for to make end of that purpose i took on hand so it was well accordant to my matter i was right glad for i was in my travail sad i eked it here to this dight for to mak me some respite this is interesting as making it probable that poetical or at least metrical composition in the national dialect was common in scotland at this early date of all our poets of the early part of the fifteenth century the one of greatest eminence must be considered to be king james i of scotland even if he be only the author of the king's choir that is the king's choir or book his claim to which has scarcely been disputed it is a serious poem of nearly one thousand four hundred lines arranged in seven line stanzas the style in great part allegorical the subject the love of the royal poet for the lady joanna beaufort whom he eventually married and whom he is said to have first beheld walking in the garden below from the window of his prison in the round tower of windsor castle the poem was in all probability written during his detention in england and previous to his marriage which took place in february fourteen twenty four a few months before his return to his native country in the concluding stanza james makes grateful mention of his master's dear gower and chaucer that on the steps sat of rhetoric while they were livened here superlative as poets laureates of morality and eloquence ornate and he is evidently an imitator of the great father of english poetry the poem too must be regarded as written in english rather than in scotch although the difference between the two dialects as we have seen was not so great at this early date as it afterwards became and although james who was in his eleventh year when he was carried away to england in fourteen o five by henry the fourth may not have altogether avoided the peculiarities of his native idiom the quare was first published from the only manuscript one of the selden collection in the bodleian library by mr w teitler at edinburgh in seventeen eighty three there have been several editions since the following specimen is transcribed from the text given by mr george chalmers in his poetic remains of some of the scottish kings now first collected octavo london eighteen twenty four though without adhering in all cases either to his spelling his pointing or his explanations where as in ward full oft i would bewail my deadly life full of pain and penance saying right thus what have i guilt to fail my freedom in this world and my pleasance sen every wight has thereof sufficence that i behold and i a creature put from all this hard is mine adventure the bird the beast the fish eke in the sea they live in freedom average in his kind and i a man and lacketh liberty what shall i sane what reason may i find that fortune should do so thus in my mind my folk i would argue but all for naught 
was none that might that on my pains wrought then would i say give god me had devised to live my life in thraldom thus and pine what was the cause that he more me comprised than other folk to live in such ruin i suffer alone among the figures nine and woeful wretch that to no wight may speed and yet of every lives help has need the long days and the night is eke i would bewail my fortune in this wise for which again distress comfort to seek my custom was on mornest for to rise early as day o oh, happy exercise by thee came i to joy out of torment but now to purpose of my first intent bewailing in my chamber thus alone despaired of all joy and remedy for to writ of my thought and woe be gone and to the window gan i walk in high to see the world and folk that went forby as for the time though i of mirth's food might have no more to lick it did me good now was there made fast by the tower's wall a garden fair and in the corners set an herber green with wands this long and small railed about and so with trees set was all the place and hawthorn hedges net that life was none walking therefore by that might within scarce any white espy so thick the bowis and the leaves green beshaded all the alleys that there were and midst every herber might be seen the sharper greener sweeter juniper growing so fair with branches here and there that as it seemed to a life without the bowers spread the herber all about and on the smaller greener twistus sat the little sweeter nightingale and sung so loud and clear the hymnus consecrate of love's use now soft now loud among that all the gardens and the wallace rung right of their song and all the couple next of their sweet harmony and lo the text worship ye that lovers been this may for of your bliss the callans are begun and sing with us away winter away come summer come the sweet season and sun awake for shame that have your heavens won and amorously lift up your head us all hark love that list you to his mercy call the description of the lady whom he afterwards sees walking under the tower at whose sudden apparition anon he says a start the blood of all my body to my heart is exceedingly elaborate but is too long to be quoted ellis has given the greater part of it in his specimens two other poems of considerable length in a humorous style have also been attributed to james i peebles to the play and christ's kirk on the green both in the scottish dialect but they are more probably the productions of his equally gifted and equally unfortunate descendant james v born fifteen eleven died fifteen forty two chalmers however assigns the former to james i as for the two famous comic ballads of the gaberluni man and the jolly beggar which it has been usual among recent writers to speak of as by one or other of these kings there seems to be no reasonable ground not even that of tradition of any antiquity for assigning them to either 
chaucer we have seen appears to have been unknown to his contemporary barber but after the time of james i the scottish poetry for more than a century bears evident traces of the imitation of the great english master it was a consequence of the relative circumstances of the two countries that while the literature of scotland the poorer and ruder of the two could exert no influence upon that of england the literature of england could not fail powerfully to affect and modify that of its more backward neighbour no english writer would think of studying or imitating barber but every scottish poet who arose after the fame of chaucer had passed the border would seek or even if he did not seek would still inevitably catch some inspiration from that great example if it could in any circumstances have happened that chaucer should have remained unknown in scotland the singular fortunes of james i were shaped as if on purpose to transfer the manner and spirit of his poetry into the literature of that country from that time forward the native voice of the scottish muse was mixed with this other foreign voice one of the earliest scottish poets after james i is robert henryson or henderson the author of the beautiful pastoral of robin and mackine which is popularly known from having been printed by bishop percy in his reliques he has left us a continuation or supplement to chaucer's troilus and cressida which is commonly printed along with the works of that poet under the title of the testament of fair cressida all that is known of the era of henryson is that he was alive and very old about the close of the fifteenth century he may therefore probably have been born about the time that james i returned from england henryson is also the author of a translation into english or scottish verse of aesop's fables of which there is a manuscript in the harleian collection number thirty eight sixty five and which was printed at edinburgh in octavo in sixteen twenty one under the title of the moral fables of aesop the phrygian compiled into eloquent and ornamental metre by robert henryson schoolmaster of dumfurling a reimpression of this edition limited to sixty-eight copies was executed at edinburgh in quarto in eighteen thirty two for the members of the maitland club to henryson moreover as has been already noticed mr lang attributes the tale of orpheus and eurydice contained in the collection of old poetry entitled the knightly tale of gola grus and gawain etc reprinted by him in eighteen twenty seven contemporary too with henryson if not perhaps rather before him was sir john or richard holland whose poem entitled the book of the howlet that is the owl was printed under the care of mr lang in quarto at edinburgh in eighteen twenty three for the bannatyne and abbotsford clubs it had been previously printed with less correctness by pinkerton in his scottish poems three volumes octavo seventeen ninety two and also in the first volume of sibald's chronicle of scottish poetry four volumes octavo eighteen o two holland's poem a wild and rugged effusion in alliterative metre cannot be charged as an imitation of chaucer or of any other english writer of so late a date another scottish poet of this time the style and spirit as well as the subject of whose poetry must be admitted to be exclusively national is henry the minstrel commonly called blind harry author of the famous poem on the life and acts of wallace the testimony of the historian john major to the time at which henry wrote is sufficiently expressed the entire book of william wallace he says henry who was blind from his birth composed in the time of my infancy mei infantiae tempore cudit and what things used popularly to be reported wove into popular verse in which he was skilled 
major is believed to have been born about fourteen sixty nine so that henry's poem may be assigned to the end of the third quarter of the fifteenth century there is reason to believe that it was printed at edinburgh as early as fifteen twenty but the oldest impression now known is an edinburgh one in quarto of the year fifteen seventy there were many reprints of it in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries some of them greatly modernized in the language and otherwise altered the standard edition is that published from a manuscript dated fourteen eighty eight by dr jamieson along with barber's poem quarto edinburgh eighteen twenty the wallace which is a long poem of about twelve thousand decasyllabic lines used to be a still greater favourite than was the bruce with the author's countrymen and dr jamieson does not hesitate to place harry as a poet before barber in this judgment however probably few critical readers will concur although both wharton and ellis without going so far have also acknowledged in warm terms the rude force of the blind minstrel's genius it may be remarked by the way that were it not for major statement and the common epithet that has attached itself to his name we should scarcely have supposed that the author of wallace had been either blind from his birth or blind at all he nowhere himself alludes to any such circumstance his poem besides abounds in descriptive passages and in allusions to natural appearances and other objects of sight perhaps indeed it might be said that there is an ostentation of that kind of writing such as we meet with also in the modern scotch poet blacklock's verses in which it may be thought it is not unnatural to a blind person nor are his apparent literary acquirements to be very easily reconciled with major's account who represents him as going about reciting his verses among the nobility carum principibus and thereby obtaining food and raiment of which says the historian he was worthy victim et vestitum quo dignus erat noctis est he seems as dr jamieson observes to have been pretty well acquainted with that kind of history which was commonly read in that period the doctor refers to allusions which he makes in various places to the romance histories of hector of alexander the great of julius caesar and of charlemagne and he conceives that his style of writing is more richly strewed with the more peculiar phraseology of the writers of romance than that of barber but what is most remarkable is that he distinctly declares his poem to be throughout a translation from the latin the statement which occurs toward the conclusion seems to express and particular to be a mere imitation of the usage of the romance writers many of whom appeal but generally in very vague terms to a latin original for their marvels of wallace life way has a further feel may show forth more with wit and eloquence for i to this have done my diligence after the proof given from the latin book whilk master blair in his time undertook in fair latin compiled it till an end with their witness the more is to commend bishop sinclair then lord was of dunkill he got his book and confirmed it himself for very true therefore he had no dreed himself had seen great part of wallace deed his purpose was to have it sent to rome our father of kirk thereon to give his doom but master blair and all sure thomas gray after wallace they lest it mani day their twey knew best of good show william's deed fray sixteen year while nine and twenty yeed in another place book five verse five thirty eight and following he says 
master john blair was oft in that message a worthy clerk baithwise and right savage lewit he was before in paris town among maesters in science and renown wallace and he at hame in school had been soon after wart as verity is seen he was the man that principal undertook that first compiled indict the latin book of wallace life right famous in renown and thomas gray person of libertown blind harry's notions of the literary character are well exemplified by his phrase of a worthy clerk baithwise and right savage he himself let his scholarship have been what it may is in spirit as thorough a scot as if he had never heard the sound of any other than his native tongue his gruff patriotism speaks out in his opening lines our antecessors that we should of read and hold in mind their noble worthy deed we let our slide through very sleuthfulness and cast us ever till other business till honour enemies is our hail intent it has been seen in their times by went our old enemies comin of saxons blude that never yet to scotland walled do good but ever on force and contrary hail their will how great kindness there has been kith them till it is well non on mony divers side how they have wrought into their mighty pride to haul scotland at under evermere but god above has made their might to pair of the fighting and slaying which makes up by far the greater part of the poem it is difficult to find a sample that is short enough for our purpose the following is a small portion of what is called the battle of shortwood shaw on wallace set a bicker bald and keen a bow he bare was big and well beseen and arrows all so baith lang and sharp with awe no man was there that wallace bow might draw right stark he was and into sour gear baldly he shot among they men of weir an angel hedda to the hawks he drew and at a shot the foremost soon he slew english archers that hardy war and white among the scots bickered with all their might their awful shot was felon for to bide of wallace men they wounded sore that tide few of them was sicker of archery better they were and they gat even partie in field to bide either with sword or spear wallace perceived his men tuck mickle deer he gat them change and stand not into stead he cast all ways to save them from the dead full great travail upon himself took he of southern men fell archers he gart d of long cashier bowmen was in that place a sir archer i waited on wallace at any opine war he used it to repair at him he drew a sicker shot and sare under the chin through a collar of steel on the left side and hurt his halsa some deal astonied he was but not greatly aghast out fray his men on him he follow it fast in the turning with good will has him taying upon the craig in sunders drake the bane it will be seen from this specimen that the blind minstrel is a vigorous versifier his descriptions however though both clear and forcible and even not unfrequently animated 
by a dramatic abruptness and boldness of expression want the bounding airy spirit and flashing light of those of barber as a specimen of his graver style we may give his envoy or concluding lines go noble book fulfil it of good sentence suppose thou be barren of eloquence go worthy book fulfil it of southfast deed but in language of help thou hast great need wan good makers rang wheel into scotland great harm was it that nane of them ye fanned yet there is part that can thee wheel advance now bide thy time and be a remembrance i you beseek of your benevolence way will not loo lack not my eloquence it is well known i am a borough man for here is said as goodly as i can my spirit feeleth nay termus esperans now beseek god that giver is of grace made hell and erd and set the heaven above that he has grant us of his dear lest and love first half of the sixteenth century college is founded in no age as we have found even the darkest and most barren of valuable produce that has elapsed since learning was first planted among us had there failed to be something done in the establishment of nurseries for its shelter and propagation the fifteenth century though it has left us little enduring literature of any kind is distinguished for the number of the colleges that were founded in the course of it both in this country and in the rest of europe this indeed was the natural and proper direction for the first impulse to take that was given by the revival of letters the actual generation upon which the new light broke was not that in which it was to be expected it should do much more than awaken the taste for true learning or at most the ambition of excellence the power of accomplishment could only come in the next era the men of the latter part of the fifteenth century therefore were most fitly and most usefully employed in making provision for the preservation and transmission to other times of the long lost wisdom and eloquence that had been found again in their day in building cisterns and conduits for the precious waters that after having been hidden for a thousand years had burst their founts and were once more flowing over the earth the fashion of founding colleges and other seminaries of learning continued to prevail in this country both down to the reformation in religion and for some time after that mighty revolution in the university of oxford brazen-nosed college was founded in fifteen eleven by william smith bishop of lincoln and sir richard sutton of presbury in cheshire corpus christi in fifteen seventeen by henry the seventh minister richard fox successively bishop of exeter of bath and wells of durham and of winchester cardinal college by wolsey in fifteen twenty five which however before the buildings had been half finished was suppressed by the king on the cardinal's fall in fifteen twenty nine the college of henry the eighth by that king in fifteen thirty two a continuation but on a much smaller scale of wolsey's design which was also dissolved in fifteen forty five when that of christ church was erected in its stead by henry to be both a college and at the same time a cathedral establishment for the new bishopric of oxford trinity on the old foundation of durham college by sir thomas pope in fifteen fifty four st john's on the site of bernard college by sir thomas white alderman and merchant taylor of london in fifteen fifty seven and jesus by dr hugh price queen elizabeth contributing part of the expense in fifteen seventy one 
in cambridge there were founded jesus college in fourteen ninety six by john alcock bishop of ely christ college in fifteen o five by margaret countess of richmond the mother of henry the seventh st john's by the same noble lady in fifteen o eight magdalen or maudlin begun in fifteen nineteen by edward stafford the unfortunate duke of buckingham and after his execution for high treason in fifteen twenty one completed by the lord chancellor thomas lord audley trinity in fifteen thirty six by henry the eighth who at the same time endowed four new professorships in the university one of theology one of law one of hebrew and one of greek caius college properly an extension of the ancient foundation of gonville hall by dr john caius or key in fifteen fifty seven emmanuel in fifteen eighty four by sir walter mildmay chancellor of the duchy of lancaster and of the exchequer and sydney sussex college in fifteen ninety four by the widow of thomas radcliffe earl of sussex originally the lady francis sydney in scotland a new university was erected in aberdeen under the name of king's college by a bull of pope alexander the sixth granted at the request of king james the fourth in fourteen ninety four the principal endower however being william elphinstone bishop of the sea a second college that of st leonard's now forming with st salvator's what is called the united college was founded in the university of st andrews in fifteen twelve by alexander stuart archbishop of the sea and john hepburn prior of the metropolitan church another college that of st mary now exclusively appropriated to the theological faculty was founded in the same university in fifteen thirty seven by archbishop james beaton a fourth university that of edinburgh was erected by king james the sixth in fifteen eighty two and a fifth that of marischal college aberdeen by george earl marischal in fifteen ninety three in ireland the university of trinity college dublin was founded by queen elizabeth in fifteen ninety one along with these seminaries might be mentioned a great number of grammar schools of which the chief were that of st paul's london founded by dean collet in fifteen o nine that of ipswich by cardinal wolsey at the same time with his college at oxford the fate of which it also shared christ church london by edward the sixth in fifteen fifty three westminster school by queen elizabeth in fifteen sixty and merchant taylor's school by the london civic company of that name in fifteen sixty eight in scotland the high school of edinburgh was founded by the magistrates of the city in fifteen seventy seven End of section 36